My exact thought was, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't have a home to go back to. If I have a chance at trying to save the marriage, it's bringing it back to something that's more of like a farm, a family friendly thing. And so that's what I did. I'm like, okay, I just, I just went for it. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Hello, I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this is the Real Food, Real People podcast, episode number one. Where do you start with something like this? I'm setting out to have genuine conversations to try to create a connection, to make the people who grow food here in the Pacific Northwest real to everybody who eats their delicious products every day, but doesn't get the chance to know what really goes on with growing them, what the farmers are really like, and how amazing this community that I got to grow up in really is. Again, my name is Dylan Honkoop. I grew up on a Washington farm, and after over a decade in media, I've come back to my local farming community, and I want to share its stories with you. I personally know so many great people with incredible stories, but I wanted to start with someone that I don't really know, with a fascinating story that I barely knew anything about, so you and I can set off on this journey of connecting with real Washington farming together. So please join me in getting real with Chris Dolman, a young dairy farmer from the Olympia, Washington area, with an incredible story of how he came back to his roots. I want to start, I think, in Vietnam. (laughs) There's no better place to start than in Vietnam. (laughs) You, You are in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. What the heck are you doing in Vietnam and, and what, cause you're a, you, yeah. you're a dairy farm kid, right? Yeah. I, I grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, when I, um, graduated high school, I went to college and I said, there's no way I'm going to be working on a dairy farm. And, uh, is this like, can you cuss in here or no? I mean, not that I would cuss, but is this, <laughs> I, no, nobody's going to like, you know, fine you or anything. <laughs> I mean, you set the precedence early. I don't, I, <laughs> anyway, no, I, I so the, I just got all of the poor jobs when I was <laughs> when I was younger. The jobs that were less desirable, as in you didn't make oh less desi- not less that desirable. you didn't make as much no, money. No, no, it on. just it, it, did they you w- make any money? Yeah, I made money. Oh, my dad paid uh, me. Okay, He's, good. You know, wasn't that child slave labor no, that I had to do from time no, to time? Myself. I mean, I'm sure I got paid less than he would pay someone else, but also <laughs> I learned more too. I got more out of it than everyone else. Okay, did, yeah. right. <laughs> so you're in Vietnam. What you're working a tech job? Yeah. So um, I had been. I'm a partner. I was a partner in a software company. Um, we came to a point where so software. What what kind of any oh, we, kind of uh, software? You business just, software. We bur- yeah. our biggest product was a learning management system that we deployed for Flextronics, which was a huge assembler. Um, let's see here. What you guys know, Foxconn is a pretty popular one. At one point, mm-hmm. Flextronics was significantly bigger than Foxconn. Wow. Yeah. So Foxconn's like the iPhone. Yeah, maker, if iPhone uh, assembly, yeah, yeah, right. Things, right. So Flextronics assembled all all kinds of stuff, and I don't know how much I'm even allowed to Ooh. say what they, top secret uh, what okay. they assembled. Okay. But were you actually living in so, Vietnam? Then? So I would live in I lived in Orange County, and then we'd travel to Vietnam once a year to work with the team. You know, as owners, you want to show your face, you want to work with the team, you need to help strategize. Um, but at this point, we were so. We were trying to deploy a mergers and acquisition strategy in Vietnam to where we were going to consolidate the develop 
development teams over there. So we were going to go and buy and merge with other big groups of developers so that we can be, you know, instead of 200 plus developers, we wanted to be over 2000 so that we could land significantly larger contracts and do a pivot on our business. In order to execute that plan, we needed to move to Vietnam because we were going to start consolidating a bunch of these software groups. And that, um, so I had moved over there. And you're thinking, maybe this isn't for me all of a sudden? I mean, you're, so, le- you're yeah. legit, like yeah. tech sector, jet setter, flying back and forth from Southern California. <laughs> I would call it a jet setter. It wasn't as extravagant as, uh, it's, it's, well, I think anybody I mean, who's yeah. done the jet set lifestyle <laughs> knows that it's not as as extravagant as they say well, in the movies. Yeah, right? I mean, we're still bootstrapping everything, too. It's right. not that right. we're rolling in the mon- the Silicon Valley money, yeah. right? We're yeah. not doing that. But it was a plan that we thought was a good plan until we actually went through our first merger with another group in Vietnam. So I was in Vietnam, and things just got terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some personal stuff. And uh, I was at a point where I was going to lose my company because mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we just went through this huge merger and I was going to lose my family. And I was in a foreign country that, uh, and my home basically, and my, I'd already kind of moved out of my home. And so I had no home and my family or my, my wife at the time, was in the process of leaving me mm-hmm. as well. And uh, I, yeah, I just... It so, just so what do you, th- <laughs> what, what, I mean, you're, you're talking about everything that's happening externally. What's going on inside you then? <laughs> well, honestly, I, I, it, I thought, well, what, what am I going to do next? I just keep plugging away and then... Um, you weren't gotta, scared or, or feeling kind of like, what What am I doing? I, I definitely had a feeling of, uh, what am I doing here? What What is all this struggle for? Is this really what God called me to do? Is, is Are these his plans? Are these mm-hmm. mine that I'm just trying to will my way through? And I, within, uh, you know, a couple of days of that contemplation, I got a... Uh, I believe it was either an email or I don't even know the exact mechanics of it. But basically through my mom, my dad asked me if I wanted to come back to the family farm and just, you know, just see what it was like to to learn the family business. And I hadn't shared any of this with my with my mom and dad. So they didn't know what was going on. They with knew you I was in Vietnam, yeah, but they didn't know anything that what was going on personally. Did you did you have a close relationship with them? Or yeah. I mean, if- oh yeah, but I again, they lived in Washington State, and I was in Southern California. So when you 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 see your parents maybe twice, three times a year maximum, and I'm not on the phone with them every day of the yeah. week. So you know, I didn't really. We they just kind of out of the blue, kind of brought this up, and I thought, well. My my exact thought was, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't have a home to go back to. If I have a chance at trying to save the marriage, it's bringing it back to something that's more of like a farm, a family mm-hmm. friendly thing. And so that's what I did. I'm like, okay, I just, I just went for it. I'm like, okay, go for it. So talk about extremes, though. Yeah, I mean. 
tech sector, other side of the globe, back home, and you said, all right, forget it. I'm going back to my roots. Yeah, I'm going back to the farm. And I moved from Orange County or for, uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, and moved back to good old Tenino, Washington. So Tenino is, 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 is very it's rural, rural America, for sure. As you're making those flights and those drives <laughs> and everything in that process in those yeah. days, what's going through your mind? <laughs> I mean, you have to you be thinking, what? Uh, what's going on? What is going on? Yeah, you know what? Honestly, I thought, okay, uh, God is in control. He's in mm -hmm. control. I'm just, I'm going to just do it and I will adapt. And sure enough, I got on the farm. I started learning some of the, I, I, we start, I started on the heifer farm. So raising the replacement animals and, um, my dad was great about it. And he said, there's no commitment. Just come here. You can live here, live, live on the heifer farm, you know, work on it. Um, you don't have to commit to running the dairy farm. Hmm. Just take a break. But, but that's what he ultimately wanted. I, I mean, think, that was kind I, of his I, game plan. I think he wanted to see if that's something I wanted to do. So his game plan wasn't to actually have me do it to run the dairy farm, but was to see if that's something I wanted to do, which is great. That's he did some great dadding right there. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> he knows how to do the dad thing. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. And so, um, and so I, you know, I did that for several years. So in 2010, I met my wife, uh, New Year's Day, or actually New Year's Eve, um, and then uh, got married at the end of 2010, and then had our, some of our own kids. So now, so now I, I'm, I went from... At one point, I was thinking, okay, I'm in Tenino. I'm never going to meet anybody. <laughs> why was I? Why was I single in uh, single in Tenino? But <laughs> and you're how old at this point? Uh, I think I was 34, 35, 35 yeah. years old yeah. in Tenino, Washington. Yeah, yeah. And, and single. I'm like, well, I'm going to be <laughs> single my whole life. <laughs> But it didn't turn out that it way. It didn't turn out that and, way. And there's such a cool part of the story of maybe a glimpse now in hindsight why this all happened. Oh, and it gets even deeper than that too. So, um, so in so and this is really I don't like this is super personal. So my ex-wife, I always wanted to have kids. Yeah, and I, we found out later that my ex-wife was never able to have children. We tried, never could. Mm -hmm. um, now she still can't have kids. Mm. And she basically released me because she thought I wasn't happy. And, mm. and she's like, you know, it, it, I, I was a little angry with her early on, but I kept moving on and uh, was able to find just an amazing woman and have three amazing children of our own. But the, the really neat part that I think um, started to take place and how I felt really it was God's hand that moved me there was not only did I really enjoy the work of being on the farm and being able to work with your hands and your brain and, you know, it just, it really kind of scratched all the itches for me. But on top of that, in 2000 and... 12, I think it was 2012, 2013, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. Whoa. Yeah, it was, you know, it's 
first we you know it's it's cancer and okay it, mm-hmm. and it, it became it uh, as they looked into it, it as tr- triple negative cancer which is really hard to you know to 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 fix to get mm-hmm. rid of and so um my dad had to spend more time with my mom yeah so we just uh that and, really and then you had to step I, it up well at, at that point i had already kind of decided that i'm going to start i really want to do this dairying thing and so i'd already started taking over the dairy before that even happened and it felt like it was an opportunity it, it basically freed up my dad to take care of my mom and so yeah, he got to take care of her for the until actually the Christmas of 2018. My mom passed away because of it. But my dad. So this, was, this past. Yeah, this past Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. So mm-hmm. my mom fought it for, you know, six years. So it was just 2012, I think, 2012, 2013. So she fought it for about six years. And, uh, and my dad was able to spend all the time he needed to with her. So. I really felt like that was an opportunity to give back to my dad, number one, mm-hmm. but also to, um, like, it really felt like God opened that door for me so that my dad can have that opportunity to spend with my mom. What was it like then being in this position of still learning and still taking over the farm as you were losing your mom? That has to all of a sudden, I would yeah, think, flip I, a switch. Like, so, this is way more serious all of a sudden. Yeah, I felt like it was a really hard time because, um, you know, I, I still trusted that, you know, in the end, God has his plan for me. And this is this is still good, but there is a lot of a lot at stake, a lot, uh, a lot of responsibilities, because now. Not only am I, you know, we're in the process of um, I'm learning the farm. So I now have, I'm responsible for the farm. My dad's number two love and my dad's number one love is, is dying of cancer. So my dad's losing his, his wife and he's kind of turned over control over to me. So I felt a pretty heavy load of responsibility yeah because it's like i can't screw this up and it's not under the auspices of hey here's the farm don't screw it up it's under the it's under the the cloud of my mom is fighting the fight of her life and and i don't know at what point you guys knew that she wasn't going to win that fight that is so heavy just to deal with whatever you're doing but you're it's kind of like two huge things happening in your world at the same time yeah yeah and and then knowing the state of the dairy industry, hmm. the last three years, uh, it's it was very challenging. So you know, he, he, my dad was was hoping not to lose a farm and a wife, hmm. right? And so we're going, we were going through all of that, and it was it was challenging because not every day was rosy. And so when you see problems on the farm, and that's the one thing that you can kind of control. You, you kind of go after it. Well, what did you and your dad talk about during that time? <laughs> we uh, we would talk farming every day. Like usually, almost every morning, we would sit and kind of go over what uh, you know what's going on on the farm. And then you know, my dad would then kind of 
talk about what's going on at home. And so we just get a chance to make sure dialogue is open between both of us. So there are no surprises. I think that was important. How's he doing now? Uh, so now I th with, you know, with my mom passing away, I think my dad is now ha at a point where it's no longer a holding pattern, but it's a chance to kind of recover and to, to, to heal. So I can see it seems as if he's healing. So it, and the grieving process and, takes yeah, a long, long yeah. time. And some people say, well, it never is really entirely yeah. over. Yeah. I don't know if it will ever be over, but I also know that you can, I could see him put on a little bit more weight again. Like mm -hmm. he was, he didn't, he didn't eat very much when he was taking care of my mom. He didn't sleep very much. And now he has that opportunity to kind of sleep and eat and just not stress near as much as he did before. So is he, back on the farm a little bit more honestly he's <laughs> he's 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 actually not on the farm as much anymore mm -hmm. um because, well, good for him yeah because i think i think his chance uh he would come to the farm because that was his only chance to kind of escape it for mm -hmm. just a short period of time mm -hmm. and so now he doesn't have to escape it he can just be just be. He can go to town, hang out with his buddies, do the coffee shop. I, I don't know what your dad's like. If he's like the dairy farmer, you know what? Honestly, I don't know what he's like either. I, mean, I don't. Ask. I don't need to dive into that. So you, you talk about what's going on with the dairy community right now, mm -hmm. and the business that is dairy farming. Explain that. What's what's going on right now? Well, we've been suffering with low milk prices for what? four years now yeah. yeah where at one point we uh milk prices were as low as they were over 30 years ago with nothing else being that low that includes feed prices cost of living employees so we we're trying to live we were trying to live on what they paid for milk over 30 years ago when we were just kids yeah right when we were just kids now that that's hard it's hard to do as a but business. I don't know how, how many other industries can operate that everybody way. Everybody <laughs> knows that it's hard and says that it's hard, but what do you actually do? Like how how do you how do you make it? Well, you um well eat, to, eat, eat top ramen every night or like what's the <laughs> That's what I did in college to survive. <laughs> That's what I did in college to thrive. If I was eating <laughs> top ramen, I was thriving. <laughs> no, um what do you do? Yeah, well, I think you, you look at any inefficiencies in your operations and you try to fix them. Uh, you have an opportunity, one, to try to make more milk. Hmm. But I think that compounds the problem overall. So um, it's really trying to maximize the margin that you do have. And at that point, it, you just hold on. You hold on, you borrow if you need to borrow, and you look for those moments to 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 pay it back when milk prices go up try to weather the storm and we we did things we made some pretty good decisions um when we did in 2014 when the when the money was good we invested it in the right spots and allowed us to start feeding cheaper and <clears throat> you know milking cows uh, in quicker. the dairy world you say invest what does that mean I that's mean, putting money back into your farm like we yeah. built we built a new commodity <clears throat> a new commodity shed that allowed us to store a lot more feed. And in the Northwest, our competitive advantage here is that we get access to export grain uh, byproducts. 
and you get those in car load, rail car loads, right? So if you don't have the capacity to store it, you're going to have a hard time trying to buy it. So we built a lot of a lot of capacity so we could buy a lot of cheap a lot of byproducts cheap when they were available. Hmm. And that's what we did. That's how we that's how we kept going. So we bought a lot of cheap feed and were able made some good decisions and uh, you know, not up until this last year when hay prices went through the roof and then the feed prices were or the the farming season was pretty dry so it kind of impacted our our yield and our grass <clears throat> that kind of hurt us this year but you know we you're talking about feed prices i think that's that's the thing that a lot of people never calculate into their understanding of how tough it is to keep a, in particular a dairy farming working yeah because they think well how much money are you getting for your, for your milk that's yeah. only half yeah so even less than half of the equation really right right so to us what was important isn't just the price we get on our milk but it's the margin between what we how much we what our cost is to feed our animals versus what we get out of it you know as far as the milk is concerned and so if you can't control the milk prices you can't control the feed prices but you can control how you feed and what you do to to make that margin improve that margin so how much different is it than at least this business side of it than the world that you came from <laughs> in tech so i that, mean a lot of different elements yeah but still you're still costs deal- yes. and prices and markets yeah you're still de- dealing with markets and prices and, and and employees and running projects and you know um it's it's, there's a lot of similarities. Yet it's a lot way. more personal Yeah, than working in tech. Yes. Because well, it's your family, your animals. Yeah, that's you, right. The employees that you're working with. Right. But it's you, you getting dirty. But I have the same sense of responsibility I have for my employees in Vietnam and my employees that were in, uh, in our software company. You get that sense of pride that you're creating these jobs that mm-hmm. are allowing to feed this, this, group, this group of people. And in Vietnam, especially because... We were a big part, I say we were a big part, the software industry was a big part of raising the middle class in Vietnam. There wasn't a middle class. Mm. There were the elites and then there were whatever was left. And so the software industry came and started to raise that bottom up to a middle class. And that was, to be part of that was really neat. We also have that same feeling here on farm Mm. because... You know, we're dealing with a lot of immigrant workers mm-hmm. and we're giving them an opportunity to be able to raise up, raise a family, send their kids to schools. And, you know, there's that sense of pride being able to do that for your your team, your your employees. And uh, that's like those those success stories are the things that I really like like that's that's where i get my uh, my i get in my happy place when i'm able to be able to provide a job that is going to help raise a family up i i have an employee that you know i he immigrated over here when he was younger um now his son is the first in his family to go to college Hmm. he owns his own house uh, you know, he, it's just that story to me makes me happy. I, I love those stories. So, you know, we want to be able to raise up, we want to be a benefit, a blessing to our employees, to our neighbors, to, you know, to the world. 
we haven't talked about your farm much yet. Beaver Creek Dairy. Yeah. Give us the the stats. How many cows are you milking? So, what kind of yeah? You know, what what's we're what's the you know anywhere from nine hundred a thousand cows mm. milking. Um, we're in Olympia, Washington. Um, it's kind of right next to <laughs> say right next to within eight miles, five miles of labor and industries department of ecology the governor's mansion, <laughs> the governor's mansion. yeah i mean I've, I've literally had the the uh department of ecology director uh, standing on my manure lagoon when we're talking cafo permits so it's uh it, we're real close right in the thick of it yeah <laughs> so they don't have to go far to know yeah. who to, yeah. to who to keep their eyes on yeah you know good old jay's eyes start watering when we spread manure <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So, i'm like so hey guess what you i'm, I'm making the economy green buddy <laughs> <laughs> so 900 to a thousand cows you know, a lot of people call that a mega dairy <laughs> what, what what's your what's your so, response to that when someone's like that's a huge it's huge we shouldn't you know have what? that that's an industrial blah 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 yeah, whatever yes i <laughs> it's a that's a great question it is and this is where i think education is essential we need to do our as a so first of all 900 a thousand cows on the west side of the mountains it's a good um, it's a good amount of cows on the east side it's a small dairy farm <laughs> regardless whether it be small or good sized it is uh they're all family farms well, but what, what does they're, that they're, mean how do you define a family farm every one of these farms are run by families their 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 mom or dad started it or you know grandparents their mom and dads are working on it they're you know the kids are working on it even though it may seem like a thousand cows is a lot with automation with the you know we've you know everybody's been we've been farming cows for over what ten thousand years right we've been dairy farming as a people group for i think at least ten thousand years they talk mm-hmm. about how long a cow has been domestic not domesticated but used for right or yeah so um i think that that as the problem the problem i see is that the the generation each generation we're growing further and further away from dairy farms from farming, from our food source. Mm-hmm. So uh, it used to be that some, you know, it used to be like, well, I grew up on a dairy farm. I know where my milk comes from. That's great. You go to store and you buy it. And then it was like, well, my parents grew up on a dairy farm. That's my grandparents. And now we've got people that have no clue what a dairy farm is. You tell them that a cow has to have a baby before she gives milk, and they're blown away. They're well, they, like, they say that's that's terrible they they there's a lot of people who claim that's that's animal abuse right <laughs> i don't know how to respond to that though mm-hmm. all right how do you respond to someone saying that a cow having a calf is animal abuse are they the same people that say that a cow uh, that chocolate milk comes from a brown cow hmm. some of them are and there was a poll i said like 20 percent of people pulled said that chocolate milk came from a brown cow. So I think what needs to happen is there just needs to be massive education on where people's food comes from. And dairy farmers need to start engaging in that. So one of the places that food and milk comes from here is from your family. Yeah, from our family. 
We make milk. It gets processed by a processor by our co-op, Dairy Gold. And it goes out to the stores, the milk that you drink. It goes in the ingredients you, you use to make your cakes, to do your, to do your things. It's in the ice cream. It's in the butter. It, it all comes from here. But you're, I mean, you're just down the road from Olympia yeah. and Tacoma and Seattle and Everett and yeah. Bellingham. And Portland. Yeah, I might say Portland. Portland yeah, the other yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. These people have to have some awareness that milk is coming from cows, don't they? They know milk comes from cows, but they don't know how. It's that simple. So what, and they think uh, it's been, you know, large farms have been demonized as corporate dairy farming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have yet to see a corporate dairy farm. Hmm. Not, not, not anywhere that I've been. <laughs> yeah, what, what would that even look like? I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah, I have a of... bunch of men in suits. I think are running around. <laughs> Do you wear a tie while you're milking at this farm? <laughs> no, I. You know, obviously there are some. I, I, I believe size is important. We don't want to get so large that we lose control over how we handle our people our environment, our animals. So there is a sense of we need to make sure we are um, being good stewards of all of those things. So there is a size when maybe that's too hard to do. I don't know what that size is, though. You mentioned the E word, environment. Yeah. And that's another one of the big criticisms is, well, you can't have that many cows and like protect the environment around where your farm is. What's your response to that and, and what do you guys actually do about that? You, you said earlier that's one of kind of one of your key things is yeah. environmental sustainability. Yeah, that's right. And, I, you know, I, we don't look at our... So for those who don't really know about cows, cows poop. <laughs> <laughs> that poop goes into a lagoon. So I can you vouch can, <laughs> for this. I've seen it. <laughs> we use that poop to grow feed for those cows. <laughs> so if you don't have crowding and you have enough land base you can use that manure is an asset to the environment not 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 a liability so manure makes the grass grow that's if you don't have the nutrients in the soil that comes from the manure you're not going to be able to have those green fields everywhere you're not going to be able to grow the stuff you need to grow but what do, you, what do you do to make sure that manure doesn't end up in the creek, in the river, well, in that's the bay, just, in that's Puget just, Sound? That's just having good, good, good farm practices, right? You just stay on top of when you spread your manure, how much you spread it on, on your fields. And that's, you know, I think every farmer uh, is given these, nu- or these nutrient management plans and, and understands when and where you're supposed to spread your manure. Now, there are times and there will be a bad actor here and there. So the state actually has a plan for yeah. how you... Yeah, you have to have a nutrient management plan in order to spread your manure. That's by state law? By, by the state. The, it's the okay. uh, Department of Agriculture requires. So it's not... You don't just go put the stuff you, out wherever. You don't just willy-nilly put manure wherever you want. Hmm. I mean, the farmers that I know, we all want to keep the environment as sustainable and as good as possible because it's where we gain our it's it's how we feed our families so we wouldn't want to do anything that jeopardizes our environment our water quality none of that stuff because we drink the water 
If, of all the chances of ruining water quality, who is it going to affect? It's going to affect me because I drink the water. I drink the water out of my irrigation line. <laughs> I, I, I trust I trust in our practices that much that I'll drink water that comes right out of the well. So managing all this you know, environmental sustainability, how much of your time does that take up? How much of your brain space does it take to, to kind of keep your whole farm on track with this? Well, it, it, again, it's something it's every day we're thinking about what we're doing with our manure because you, you need to make decisions daily and know, you know, every year is different. The weather causes you to adapt to it. You don't control the weather. So um, we're, every day you, you, you put some brain time into what, what are we going to do with our, with our manure and you game plan it so you know, you know, this is what I'm going to do when I'm, when I've got the crop off the field and that this and that. But yeah, I'd say you, you, you invest a little bit of time every day to figure out what you're doing with your manure at that time. So here you are a guy who had been working in tech in Vietnam and you're back here in Washington state managing cow poop. <laughs> What am I doing? Yeah, what am I doing with my poop today? <laughs> do you, that, do you, I, that's the, you know, I actually had that same thought while I was working for the tech company, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can about imagine how that would have gone on. <laughs> it wasn't to the same scale. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> unless I ate uh, some bad food. <laughs> Never mind. I shouldn't even we won't there. ask about Vietnam. Uh, do you stay in touch with any of those people from kind of your previous life? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I do actually. Yeah, I have, uh, I, I made some good friends when I was in California and, uh, I say, I, I hope that's okay for me to call yeah, it your previous life, my previous but really life, that's yeah, kind of what yeah. it seems like. Yeah, no, I, I stay in touch. Um, not as often, but as a farmer, it's, you don't talk to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So what do they think? What do they say about all? <laughs> so this? one of my friends from college, actually, when I found when I found out that when I, when I decided to make the move, he goes, "You know what? That seems like such a crazy jump for most people, but I think that's something that seemed right up your alley." Because <laughs> he was he he ran a software company as well nice. out of college, and we you know we had that common thing. And then when I told him I'm moving to the dairy industry, he's like. That seems like such a far jump for people, but you know, it seems right up your alley. So he's like, I kind of expected that out of you. So people have been supportive. Yeah, yeah. And most people are blown away that like, wait, what? You ran a software company? Or uh, it, I don't dress like a lot of dairy farmers. I still mm-hmm. kind of carried that through, you know. And, and so they're usually more shocked that I am a dairy farmer than if, that if that if I said I worked as a like worked in the tech sector so you don't quite fit the dairy farmer stereotype as uh, far as the, the well, certain things i do style yeah <laughs> as far as how i dress what's the dairy yeah. farmer style that you i'm don't not fit? gonna say you know what you know the iron you know the irony of it today is i'm wearing plaid but i don't have my romeos on or my wranglers <laughs> wait you're saying my romeos and my wranglers do you own romeos and wranglers no i don't actually okay, do so not. that's where you don't fit the stereotype I joke. I joke. No, that's, you know, so one of the neat things that I think when uh, an interesting thing that I, uh, uh, revelation was when I went to my first kitchen meeting 
ASA, and that's a meeting where all the dairy farmers in the local area get to talk to the representative of, at the at the uh, co-op level, right? So Dairy Gold will hold a kitchen meeting. That sounds so like it, 1950. Yeah. Oh, we're meeting in like a kitchen a, meeting a, in a in some some restaurant. It's not an actual okay. kitchen. Okay. But it's, a, you know, there's country music playing loud. Everyone rolls up in their big pickup trucks and you're there. And, and you know, my first kitchen meeting, I'm coming, like, I'm coming from Vietnam and Orange County thinking about, you know, there was, you know, I, I you know, maybe I'm a little, I don't want to say I'm arrogant, but like there's a sense of like, well, I don't know what to expect, but I doubt any one of these guys had run a software company before. Mm-hmm. And that sounds super arrogant, and I feel so terrible for having that thought. But there was just that was there was a, just a little bit of that in my head. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it consumed me, but there was just that little bit, and that got wiped away immediately. The first question asked by this group that you would look, you would look over them, and you weren't, you know, if you were pretty judgmental, you might think, bunch of redneck farmers. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's the first thought you'd you'd think of. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of plaid in this room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you the minute I heard their question, I'm like, oh, we are dealing with intellects. These are mm. there are intellects here. And they're talking about markets. They're talking and, and these questions were were deep questions. They are not, you know, what you would as the general population think of farmer would ask. Isn't isn't that part of the one of the ingredients that 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 city person that you're talking about who doesn't really know isn't connected anymore with where the food comes from? That's the part that they aren't aware of. Exactly that right. These aren't the, just people bumbling around like, "Oh, here's yeah, some milk. I guess I'll sell it." Right. That's exactly right. If these people were not if 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 the dairy farmers that I'm in the room with right now, if if they were not dairy farmers, They'd be CEOs, CFOs. They'd be running their own businesses. They'd be doing these things. It's amazing how it's just that they have the passion for farming, and so they so they are dairy farmers. But you know they could be doing different things. But we judge them because we're it's different. It's because it's we're so disconnected from rural America. So maybe this is part of your non-judgmental growth right in in yeah. in, in not yeah. making snap judgments about people well i definitely have learned that that that's that is definitely true i've you feel like you're kind of on the other side of it i mean it's i don't want to say by any means that i uh, equate it to what um you know different people groups have mm-hmm. had to deal with right you know this is this is just yeah i'm still i'm still a white male in in yeah. a, in a white male dominated country yeah. right so uh but there is something about having a little bit of a chip on your shoulder because i am a rural farmer hmm. or get perceived as a rural farmer and the negative connotations that come with that and so that puts a bit of a chip on my shoulder but then i think you know how am i doing that to other people Mm-hmm. And so it really has caused me to reflect even more, like taking even closer look on my prejudices and st- how ineffective certain stereotypes are, you know, and that's it's part of my growth. Well, thank you for, for chatting with us. I really appreciate <laughs> you opening up, telling this whole yeah. story. It's a good one, by the way. Yeah, I hope you can piece it together. <laughs> it, well, it, 
I mean, with as many elements as you have going here, it's yeah. at least the start of a good book or movie or something <laughs> with, with these different worlds and coming back. Yeah, and, well. And the heartbreak of losing your mom and the kind of finding your place in this world back where you started after having gone kind of is it a prodigal son story well not no, quite prodigal no, no. son I, story I, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't run away and, and, and gamble away all my inheritance okay, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll still let you i got to do that still okay okay let us know when you're done with that and we, we can update the story <laughs> chris dolman uh beaver creek dairy uh washington state family farmer thank you so much um for chatting with us well, on the podcast. Thanks, Dylan. I appreciate the, the time. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. Thanks for listening to the Real Food, Real People podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Also, check out our website, realfoodrealpeople.org. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families.